A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When she was 14 years of age, Suzanne Connolly told police and carers and social workers about the sexual abuse she had experienced at the hands of her adoptive father, John Rossi in Belfast for the previous three years. The abuse began when she was 11 and happened in their home on the well-to-do Malone Road in Belfast. It happened in the family holiday home in Bundoran in County Donegal. It would happen in the bath and in the bedroom and in the car. Despite telling of the abuse and despite John Rossi admitting his crimes, it would take 34 years before finally the case was dealt with and John Rossi pleaded guilty. This week, the 80-year-old was sentenced to five years, of which he is likely to serve two and a half. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle, standing in for your host, Cathy Sheridan. Later on in this episode, we hear from the makers of Kiss Kiss Slap Slap, a play that's appearing in the Dublin Fringe Festival on the theme of rape culture and sexual violence. But first, we hear from Suzanne Connolly, who did something not many survivors of sexual abuse feel able to do, understandably. She waived her anonymity exclusively to the Irish Times and in a searing interview with Susan McKay, she explained why she believes the judicial system does not serve children. She said, Two and a half years for child rape? I've suffered all my life and there are so many others like me. The system just isn't right. It degrades victims and disincentivizes people from coming forward rather than perpetrators. It is hard to think of a system that is more biased against kids. This is a difficult listen, but it's an important one. Suzanne Connolly is somebody we need to hear from and somebody whose experience and views need to be taken on board if we're to deal with child sexual abuse in this country. The way Suzanne sees it, and it's difficult to argue against this, given the very, very low number of convictions in this area, The way she sees it is that the legal system is rigged against children and indeed women. We're grateful she came in to talk to us. I started by asking about her early life when she was born to a single mother in Belfast in 1971. Uh, My mum couldn't keep me and she put me up for adoption and I was adopted into the Rossi family. Okay, and there was other adopted children in the family too? There were five other adopted kids, yeah. Okay. In total after, after the other two came after me, yeah. And in the piece that uh, you did with Susan McKay in the Irish Times today, you talk about your father uh, as someone like you call him very much a patriarch and that you had this overwhelming love for him as a young girl. Tell me a bit about that. I just adored him. I loved him. Um, He'd come home from work. He was on his feet all day in the fish and chip shop and the ice cream shop in the Atlantic Avenue and the Antrim Road in Belfast and he'd come home and I'd have a, a basin of hot soapy water and I'd take his shoes and socks off and wash his feet and put cream in his feet and rub his feet and loved him, absolutely adored him. Um, what kind of a man was he, like what that you remember at that time? He was, he ran the family. He was um, classic patriarch, um, overweight, uh, sense of you know my way or the highway kind of attitude, that was it. And you had a very comfortable life. I mean, you were adopted into a family that was kind of doing well for itself. Yep. Malone Road is, pe- you know, people from da- from Dublin might know, but it's a quite a well-to-do area of yep. Belfast, very leafy and mm-hmm. uh, holiday home in Donegal. So it was a comfortable mm-hmm. um, home. So what happened then in terms of when the abuse started? Abuse started... My understanding of it started, it's very hard to timestamp these things, but when I was around nine years old, um, the first um, actual cases of the assaults that I can timestamp uh, was around 11, and it went through until I was 14 when I left home. Okay, so what was he doing? I mean, God, as any anybody else who's been in my shoes can well tell you, uh, molestation from um, touching over my clothes, under my clothes, um, inappropriate kissing, masturbation of him. Um, where do you want me to start and end? Uh, it went on every day. 
for that time. Um, there was a normalcy about it. There was later on there was bribery. There was um, the, it happened at home um, in the family in the holiday home. Sorry, in Bundorn, um, in the car. Um, there was a, in the bath. Um, on the floor of the bathroom, in the bedroom, in his bedroom, with other family members in the house present. Um, it just, it was normal. In in the in the river down the bottom of the house in, in Donegal. Yeah, it's just, it, was just, it was just a normal part of my life. And you, as a young girl, just didn't know that this wasn't something that... No clue. No clue. Not until I told a very good friend of mine in school. She confided in me about a... Family secret, basically, and, uh, and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" She told me she told me her biggest secret. I better tell her mine. So I, I told her, and um, she was saying, "That's really wrong. That's that's awful." And and at that moment, I thought, "But sure, it happens in everybody's house." And obviously, looking back on it now, I wasn't far wrong because it's such an endemic in our society. But back then, I genuinely thought this was normal, and I was his special little girl, as he called me. And you mentioned bribery there. Yeah. What kind of things was he saying? He. I mean, there are 18 accounts out of 20 that he's admitted to and the two that he has not admitted to are the two most serious cases of um, oral rape and um, uh, vaginal rape. And he has, he said, no, no, didn't do that. Did everything else, but didn't do that. Um, But anyway, the bribes were about those acts. And um, if you do this, if you, as he said, if you eat him up, which was if you suck my penis for every day for nine months, I'll give you a parka jacket. Which was I was interested in mod music at the time, and I thought that was the that was the best thing I could possibly own. So that's basically so yeah, bribery and that came forward in the court as well. Which was the team um, did a great job. The legal team just to say that. Um, just going back uh, to you as a child, there's another instant where he was suggesting that you would run off to get to Gretna Green to That's get right. married. That's so right. in in his very warped view, like when he talked about you as a special girl, this was the kind of way, he, almost like he thought of it as some kind of relationship. Absolutely. Um, and later when I was in care, I asked him, why did why did you select me? Why me? Why did you do it to me? Because there were six children, mm-hmm. six adopted children. Three so, girls, three yeah. boys, yeah. yeah. And he said, because I was in love with you. And that's, I, I can't get my head around that, right? And a lot of people can't get their heads around that. But what I would say is that because we don't understand paedophilia, that goes part way to preventing us from doing anything about it. So I can't really get my head around it, so I don't really understand it. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to agree with their position, which is, no, 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 it doesn't really happen. And of course it's not real. And why, how could I possibly do So the fact that we can't get our heads around it is not an excuse to do nothing. We're sitting on our hands about this in this country and that has to end. Go back to when you talked to your friend. She told you this big family secret. Mm-hmm. You felt, oh, I, I have a secret too. Do you remember the way that you articulated it to her? Because you were saying, you know, you thought it was normal. It was... You knew it was a secret because obviously your dad did he did he tell you that? Was don't it tell always? anybody. Yes, this is our special. This is our you're my special girl. This is our special secret. Um, don't tell anybody. I'll go to prison. Yeah. Okay. So right. And so when you told your friend, do you remember how you said it to her? Like what was what were the words that you used in daddy, telling her? Daddy touches me, and me and daddy have a special relationship. We we have a sexual I didn't didn't use the word sexual but he touches me under my clothes he touches my body um I'm naked with him in bed a lot that kind of thing and and she and she um she told was appalled. you yeah completely appalled and was that for you as a child then it, uh, uh, out of the blue like a wake up call yes. oh Mm-hmm. So do you remember what that spiralled into then in terms of... Because you were already having effects from, from being abused. I mean, were you self-harming at that point? Later, or? after that. Okay, after that. so it was afterwards when you realised. You have to remember that when you're a child, you don't have any understanding of what sexual sexuality is, really. Um, your own sexuality, sexual relationships, any of that. And that was my sexual blueprint. So... That seemed normal to me. And so for this new piece of information to come in, it was kind of a bit of the bolt out of the blue. And and to, and I trusted her. I trusted my friend. And it slowly... I was 14 at that stage as well, so I was coming through puberty and 
things were changing in my own physiology. I was starting to look at things a little bit more with a bit more of a critical assessment and having a bit more of a step back from it. And at that time, he, excuse me, was um, hospitalised uh, for, um, he had gout, I think, and some other issues. And, and I refused to go and see him. And during those 14 weeks when he was in hospital, that's when I became really clear in my mind, I need to get away from these people. This is a very unsafe environment and I need to get out. So what happened then? Um, I My then mother, uh, Barbara Rossi, had me see a psychiatrist at the time because... I was because I wasn't seeing my father in hospital because I was starting to act out. I was shouting in the house and um, uh, causing causing disruption essentially, um, which is frankly per- perfectly understandable. Classic, of course. And um, she had me see a psychiatrist, and I said to her, "You need to get me out of that house." And I didn't tell her why. You said to the psychiatrist, "This is yeah. I need to not be there." Yeah. And she listened and she got me out. She put me into a temporary care home. And after they promised me that I didn't have to go home, I told them what was going on. Okay. And this was um, a a kindly person who ran this home. A couple, yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So you were able to tell them. And that was the first time really that you'd uh, divulged kind of... He was the second person. The first person was a woman called Ursula Morrow, who was my, if you like, my... She was spe- she was my caretaker, specially assigned to me in that home, and she was wonderful. And um, and I told her first, and then she said, "This is very serious. You have to go and tell Mr. and Mrs. Smith." And so they, d- so I did, and um, and they were very, they were lovely. They stopped pushing family contact after that, and they took me to the police, uh, got the police to come to the home, and they interviewed me, and took us from there. Good job. So this is in 1985 when you first um, yeah. talked to the police about this. I mean, this is what's extraordinary about this case and maybe it's not extraordinary. Maybe this is just the way it is with these cases that nothing happened. I mean, it's 34 years later mm. that you are sitting here now and, and, and he's convicted and sentenced. But And we'll get on to that in, in a minute. But you told the police what was going on. So yeah. can you explain or... Well, they went to him and he denied it and that was that. Right, and that was the end of it mm. then. But then what happened afterwards? Because the thing is, what's amazing about you and, you know, the, the support you've had as well is that you didn't give up. You kept pursuing it because many people would just say, there's no way I'm up against too much here. It's not going to happen. But what happened in your case? A couple of years later, um, I said to him, I'm not going to have contact with you anymore until you tell mum the truth. My, my, my adopted mother then. And um, he said, oh, you're crucifying me. You're destroying my life. And, uh, and I said, OK, well... Needs must, cheerio, and hung up. And next thing, 10 minutes later, the office phone rang, and which was a different phone from the, the kid's phone in the home. And uh, staff answered it and she said, OK, everybody out of the room except for you. You've, you've got a phone call from your dad. And um, he came on and he said, I told your mother the truth. And I said, I don't believe you put her on. And she came on the phone and she said, I can't believe you could do this to me. And at that point, I realised that woman is an unsafe parent and she's not a, she's not a protective parent for me and but in in hindsight I mean years and years later having done ton of therapy and ton of research in this area she's a classic patriarch's wife which is I support my husband I do she's still supporting him now I support my husband no matter what he says or does and anything that crosses that the, that is to blame Instead of standing up and being a parent and saying, my child is harmed. You have harmed my, chi- my, my, my child who's a minor. That didn't, that didn't cross her mind. So at that point then he'd admitted it uh, to, to his wife and um, wh- wh- how did it develop? So I told the social worker. I had a social worker assigned to me and, and she went out to visit them and then he admitted it to the he, social worker And he told the well. social worker. Mm-hmm. So at that point, what, what, what you were talking in, still in the 80s now at this 85, point. 85, yeah. So you think... So therefore, something's going to happen now because he's admitted to a social of course, worker. Of course, yeah. And what? Why that was the tenth of August, um, nineteen eighty-five, and then the the thirteenth of August, nineteen eighty-five. There was a social social workers conference, essentially, where a whole ton of social workers all get together and they all had a conversation about what had happened, and there were files put together about that, and that was that. Nothing else happened. So it, it that wasn't given to, to the police. In other and words, why is that? Do you think? Absolutely no idea. 
don't know. Okay. So you were in care and um, you weren't seeing your family and you kind of had to build a, a new life mm-hmm. on your own and in care. You must be a very strong, resilient person because you went off and you studied law mm-hmm. in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and how did, you, you know, this thing is, you never probably get over it, but you obviously attempted to try and build up your life. But how did it affect you? How did, was it, did it affect your life in that time afterwards and since? Child abuse is one of those things that, first of all, you don't understand what it is when it's happening. And so you have all of this embedded trauma in your system that's a lot of it's unconscious because you can't consciously deal with it while it's happening. Right. So years later, that will all erupt out of your body and into your life. So you project it into your relationships and into your environment and into your your relationship with your boss and your relationship with whatever it is. Right. That's your body's unconscious way of trying to heal and get the toxicity out of your body by literally spilling it into your life. So that's why people who have trauma, they look like a car wreck, you know, and their lives look like a car wreck. It's because the 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 trauma that's in their system is coming out of their bodies into their lives. Um, a much healthier way to address it is to go to therapy and to make the unconscious conscious and see why you're behaving the way you are and then to take full ownership of it so that that process goes from being a victim of the trauma that's in your system to taking full ownership of it, changing that narrative from being, oh, I'm, I'm at the mercy of the trauma that happened to me to saying, no, I've got this. I am a victim no longer. I am a survivor now. I know what happened to me. I know exactly who's responsible and who should be held accountable for it. And that's what the Rape Crisis Centre did for me. That's what therapy does. So it was later. When did you get finally go to the Rape Crisis Centre and, and start dealing with when it? When I came back from Brunel. From, from, from London? From London, yeah. Went, came back to Dublin and went to the Rape Crisis Centre for, for a few years. And they were phenomenal. They deserve every support. They're a fantastic organisation. Okay. And in all this time, did you feel like, I'm just going to leave it, I'm, I'm not going to pursue him... Or did it kind of go in waves that you kind of thought, oh, forget about it and then I'll come yeah. back? So so when did you kind of think, right, I'm going to try again? Well, I did over the years. In 2004, I went back again and they'd lost the file and the people who had taken it on the first place weren't working there anymore. And it was pillar to post. And then so it more sta- the new statements and I can't remember how many statements I made over the years. And then all saying the same thing. And then... Eventually, um, and, and that at that point, we said, look, the social worker knows. And so the, the police then went to the social worker and the social worker said, no, 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 he didn't admit that to me. And what had happened actually was my blood mother, my mum, um, she... So you'd, you had traced your birth mother, Ben, yeah. when you were around 17 or something? 17, yeah. And yeah. she was very supportive. So when you found her, you told her what had happened. Mm-hmm. She must have been very upset to think. She that was angry, but she was very supportive. And she brought me in, her and her, her lovely husband, and they brought me in and put me up and put me to school again and put me back on the right track, basically. I wouldn't have gone to Brunel but for them and um, wouldn't have got my life back in order but for them. Um, but, uh, yeah, she met the social worker, obviously, after I tracked her down. And um, my mother, um, she was overwhelmed because it was like, well, you know, this, this is a big conversation I'm going to be having with this woman I've never met before. What if I forget stuff that happened? So she put a tape recorder and recorded the conversation, and which was a good idea. And um, later the police um, went to the social worker and said, so he admitted it to you, that John Rossi admitted the abuse to you? And she said, no, 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 that didn't happen. And the police came back to us and said, no, the social worker's denying it. And um, we said, well, we have a tape of her admitting it. So we gave the tape to the police and the police went back to her saying, well, we have a recording of you saying that John Rossi admitted this abuse to you. The social worker's name was Arlene Healy. And then she suddenly remembered and produced all of her files and said, oh, yes, this happened and here's all the files and blah, blah, blah. So that was why, in 2004. Why did she initially say no, do you think? No idea. You'd have to ask her. And it may have been policy back then. I just don't know. I don't know. Okay, but she eventually did give all the information she, she did had. did eventually. And is that the thing that allowed the case to finally... Nope. It still, it, that was in 2004, um, and it, we just kept pushing and pushing. The woman who took the case back then was Shashina Hughes. She was a PSNI officer, and um, then she left under the stress of the job. So there was a new guy, William Bell, blah, 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 and then he got moved around. Anyway, then I met my husband in 2012, and... You went to New York? Yeah. yeah. Were you working there? 
Yeah. Because you'd worked as a journalist then as well in, in the intervening mm-hmm. period and you'd covered murder trials. And one of the things you said to Susan McKay was that you often wondered in those trials, like, what was worse, murder or rape? Yeah. At least with murder, you were finished with it and mm-hmm. rape, it, you, it never leaves you. That's right. Yeah. Keeps going. Yeah. Um, but you went to New York and you met your husband. Yeah. And... He, we, on on a visit back to Ireland, I'd come back twice a year back then when I lived over there and um, he and mum said, we're going to go and chase this up, you know. And the two of them went to Belfast and um, finally got a case number. So that was a big breakthrough for us. When we had a case number, it didn't matter who was handling it, didn't matter whether, where, what office they were in, didn't matter, blah, blah, blah. Now we have the, now we can chase it. And so we did. And, um, rang them up and went over to see uh, Sergeant Paul Gillespie on the Antrim Road um, and he took another statement and finally... <laughs> At this stage you'd given probably five, six, seven easily, statements. Yeah. yeah. And finally they, the PPS said, yes, we're going to prosecute. This is after they had said several years prior, we're definitely not going to prosecute and now they said, yes, we're going to reopen the case. Um, and then finally he... And then he denied it the whole way through. And, and um, so I had to prep for trial and um, which is gruelling. And uh, then uh, the day, the Friday before the Monday, the trial was due to start. Uh, the plea bargain was entered into, and he admitted eighteen out of twenty counts. Right, and then here we are. This week, he was uh, sentenced. Now he got five years, mm-hmm. which for the hell, the daily hell that you were put through for f- for four years of your childhood um, and all the trauma that it's caused you for, it seems very very little he's 80 now um, he'll walk in two and a half years that's a given that's nothing to do with remorse so he'll or just parole board or anything like that years. he'll walk it, after two and a half why years why do you say that? that's the case for every case in Northern Ireland they, they all get half the sentence ok um, how did you feel hearing that sentence? it didn't really matter what sentence he got so long as he went to jail he's, abs- he's got absolutely no remorse there's no accountability in him, so it's not a case of sentencing. Is about trying to teach the 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 accused or the defendant that what they did was wrong. So that that's not going to happen. It's a peculiarity of these kinds of um, predators. I didn't. I wasn't invested in the outcome because if I had been, and say he'd walked, what would that have said to me? Um, any defence barrister in any intimate abuser case that's child abuse or adult rape or domestic violence. The, there's a peculiarity of the personality of those types of abusers, which is entitlement. I have an entitlement to use that person's body for my own whim. And I will manipulate and mould you and groom you in order to get my way. Now, there's you could write essays and essays about that, but just to boil it down to the this, this sentence... So essentially what uh, John Rossi was saying to the defence barrister and what he was trying to to say was that you had provoked these um, sexual assaults, that somehow you were wanting it to happen, that it was your fault and that you were a provocative uh, girl, which is just just an extraordinarily evil uh, proposition to make. And eventually the... um the judge stopped uh, stopped it and said, look, by the way, um, to the QC, said, uh, it says here in the probation report that she uh, must have brought it on herself and answered with incredulity. But what I'm trying to say is that any defence barrister's argument in court is a legitimisation of a grooming by these predators. We have to be, you have to be on alert about that because that's a grooming of the system and the system then te- in, te- in turn is an enabling of these kinds of cases. That has to end. That has to end. And it's only it's only a vigilance about at every step of the way. Well, what does that what does that look like from a, a predator's perspective and from a victim's perspective? And it's all very well to say about victims' rights and, and the accused rights and all the rest of it. We don't have to have an adversarial trial. It's very combative. Why don't we have an inquisitorial trial like they have in the Netherlands where they care about the truth? And in this country and others that have adversarial trials, when the truth and justice coincide, it's a coincidence only. That's it. Whereas with an inquisitorial trial, you're seeking to get to the truth and we're looking at, well, 
it's not on the balance of probabilities, not not beyond reasonable doubt. It's what actually happened. Mm. It's not a combative environment, which is much kinder to victims, much fairer in in to justice. And in my opinion, the way to go. You um, did a master's in UCD, I think. What mm. was the name of that master's? It was a master's of equality studies um, in UCD. And my thesis was um, how child sexual assault is effectively legal in this country. And the, and just to speak to that, the, the statistics speak for themselves on that front. If uh, The 2002 Savvy report um, said that 42% of women in this country reported that they have experienced some kind of sexual assault. And this is broad. Now, this is not just paedophilia. This is, this is across the board. And then in 2009, other um, statistics came forward that we, that we have because the, 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 the data that we have is scant. Um, of 100% of known cases, 10% of those cases go to trial. And of that 10%, 8% get convictions. So of the 100% of known cases, that's not all actual cases now, we're looking at 0.8% convictions and that you're not even looking at whether or not the sentences were commensurate and in my case four years of sexual assault rape and a two and a half year sentence for that effectively because he'll walk after that time if you were to ask any sane adult in Ireland today if you knew any child that was raped and their their abuser or their attacker got two and a half years would you think that that was fair there's not one person in Ireland who was seeing who would say yes. It's it's a the system needs an overhaul. Now the barristers did the best that they could with what they had. In my case, I was very lucky. The system needs to be changed. Why do you think the system is the way it is, or was set up in that way? Why are uh, children not protected, um, and why are we don't have any, as hardly any convictions in this? This is a huge, huge question. I know. I'm sorry. It's a huge question, and it's one that's I don't think we're ready to answer as a society. To be honest, my personal opinion is because it's a patriarchal system. It's been set up to support patriarchal norms, and by that I mean, look at the word family. It comes from the Latin familial, which means to own ownership of wife children and animals and that's the basis of the patriarchal system and the the hierarchical nature of it and women and children boys and girls women and children are the runt of the litter of this whole hierarchy and the system needs a complete overhaul where the human rights of women and children are respected and revered in the society and currently they are not and the Tom O'Malley in NUI Galway was asked by the government recently to go and investigate, particularly after the the, the rape um, trial in Belfast, so known as the rugby trial, to, well, now let's let's look at the, the legal system and what changes can we make? And, and he's been briefed with, um, let's look at representing victims in in court. Will that will that have much of a you know seismic shift? The answer to that is no. It might help in a small way, but not really. Um, let's let's look at what provisions we can put in place. Well, you know, she can give evidence behind a screen or she can do... Th- All of that skirts the issue. Let's get to the nuts and bolts of the issue, which is that the system is rigged. It's rigged against children and women, frankly, in cases of intimate abuse. That's child sexual assault, rape and domestic violence. It's rigged against people, victims in those cases, to undermine their story. They are disincentivized from coming forward and when they do, they are degraded as they go through the system, sending a very clear message to other victims, do not come forward. And let's be very clear about this. It sends a very clear message to predators. Ashy, you'll get away with it. It'll be grand. Um, Suzanne, something you said earlier really struck me when you talked about we're looking at things through the wrong lens, the wrong prism in that we're not looking at, in your your case, a paedophile that you were living with was was abusing you pretty much with impunity, as you said, with, with other family members around, not saying that anybody knew, but the fact is he was hiding in plain sight almost. We and when he says he loved he loved you and you know it's a special relationship and those kind of things, because we can't get our head around what this is, what this kind of a mindset is. We don't. We're not looking at it enough. Do you think that's something that also has to change as well as the system? No question about it. 
the a lot of what we've been talking about has been about victims, the, the court system, um, how how we're handling these cases. Oh, absolutely, yes, we're doing this, that, and the other checks and balances. We're looking at we're, we've got the spotlight on the wrong side of the aisle. We need to be looking at paedophilia. We're not doing that. We we don't we can't get our heads around it. We don't know what it is. We don't understand it. So therefore, oh, can't touch it. It's too toxic. We don't know how are we going to begin to. Understand. In Germany, there are state run, state paid for ads that have a picture of a guy looking at a boy on a bus, and the strap line is, "Do you like kids too much? Ring this number." There's a proactive approach to helping would be predators and predators come forward. Now, there's a. I'm going to make controversial comment now. In Germany, there is not a. Um, you're not forced to report if you know of a predator who's come forward and, and has. And that has a. So it has a double-edged sword here. On the one hand, it's important that kids are um, kids are protected, and if you hear of a kid that has is adds at risk, you have your duty bound to report it. There hasn't been enough resources put in to be able to take on board all of those cases. So a lot of those. So the the great increased volume means that the cases that need the help don't come to the surface, right? If you wanted to prioritise it, I'm not saying that it's a competition at all. Then if you look at the other side of it, in Germany, those people are not forced to report uh, known or uh, personally, uh, people who have come forward and said, I, I admit to having done this or whatever. They're not forced to report. It means that those predators come forward. It means, and would-be predators come forward. It means that they are more likely to get help now, that's not to say for a moment that I think that a lot of the research that's been done and a lot of the, the trial uh, and programs, trials and programs that have been put in place, that they do work. My understanding is that they don't, right? And that's that's kind of the understanding that we've reached, not, not talking about even necessarily in Ireland, but in the States and in, in Birmingham, particularly the Gracewell Clinic and what have you. There, there were very professionally run organizations uh, programs for just for uh, intimate abusers of this type where they were treated in in group therapy under rigorous conditions and what it served to prove was that those predators had no capacity for empathy so there was no sense of them even coming through that kind of reduction in recidivism as a result of having empathy or anything else to kind of develop that. But also the the results of those programs prove that those men just, that they, those programs serve to teach men how to stay one step ahead and how not to get caught. Okay. Um, there's so much we could say about that issue as well. It's almost a whole, a whole other thing. But I just want to ask you, because you did something quite extraordinary um, that we don't see happen very often, which is that you waived your anonymity. Mm. That's why the piece by Susan McKay was in the Irish Times. You waived it exclusively to, for the Irish Times, yep. um, which doesn't happen very often for, for many understandable reasons mm. where, where people who've been through what you've been through don't want to put their face to it. So I just want to finish by asking you why you did that, why you put your name out there, put your, your adoptive father's name out there. Um, what motivated you that way? I know that I wouldn't have a platform talking to you today now about these issues if you didn't know my story. So that's the that's the bold fact of it. So I have to put forward my... This is the platform. I'm not... I know where accountability lies. I have absolutely nothing to be ashamed for the crimes that he's committed against me. The other side of it is... That's the, that's the public reason. The, the private reason is I wanted other parents to know that he's not safe. I want other parents to who have who have had their children have had access to him um, unsupervised that they are now in a position to be able to check. Are you were you safe? Were you all right, etc. We must clarify that there are no outstanding cases or any allegations. Absolutely, from anyone else. Absolutely. Yeah. I also wanted other potential victims to feel vindicated to come forward, and if he does get out because he's 80 and he's infirm, if he does get out alive in two and a half years, I wanted other parents to know. He's not safe to let your kids around him. As a parent, that's the reason. And then, because you've spoken so powerfully about the system, I presume as well, this is something that we don't talk about enough in terms of what it is that's wrong with the system. And you talked about it being rigged, and I think you're so articulate there in the way you described it. And we sort of, I think to some people might sound like a massive conspiracy theory. Do you know, like, how can our whole judicial system be rigged against women and children? But if you look at the statistics that you said, there's something, there's something rotten, there's something wrong. And there's no point just 
we need to do something about it. And I suppose when you come on and you talk about these things and you've experienced and you were a journalist and you're you're such a an advocate now. So is that what you feel is, is your role? And that's what you want to be part of now, helping to change the system? I'm not naive. I'm very aware I'm only one voice. But I think that there's a huge call for change coming that has is, that is happening now, not just with the Me Too movement, Time's Up movement. And God bless her, that woman. I don't want to talk about the legality of it, but sh- does she have any idea the we're seismic about the woman shift in Belfast in, in those, the rugby those trial? Men were um, acquitted. All and, acquitted, yeah. yeah. And just to say about that, everybody in that trial followed the letter of the law, all checks and balances, all checked, and yet they all walked. And then the big movement that happened after that about the we, we believe her. Does that woman at the centre of that have any idea of how she has personally changed public opinion about the, and sensitised people to the to the issues at hand? I take my hat off to her. I, I, I don't know her. I'd love to buy her a pint sometime. But what I'm trying to say is I think that there's a, a change happening and I think that I'd like to add my voice to that call for change. And because I suppose what people saw through that, and as I said, they were acquitted and and they were um, found not guilty. Yeah. Uh, but what people saw there was what the what that ordeal was like for the yeah. person put going forward with mm-hmm. with a with an allegation, and w- so that is what we we saw very viscerally and yeah. and uh, made a big impact on people. Mm-hmm. Um, what next for you, Suzanne? Uh, I presume there'll be lots of people wanting to talk to you and lots of opportunities to do that. Will you be going forward and, and talking to Yeah, talking on the Sean O'Rourke show tomorrow. And just my job, it's not about me. This isn't about, this is about the generations of people coming after us mm. going into this same system and with the same set of circumstances and this thing perpetuating. That's what did. And if I had any role in any of it, I would like to think that it would be by putting my voice forward so that this small platform that I have to use it for good, to try and call for change, to affect change, so that the generations coming after us don't have to suffer like we did. Because there's children today in this country being abused yes, of um, and are. going through exactly what you went through yeah. and who knows where those cases will end up, whether they'll ever see the light of day. Yeah. If they do see the light of day, whether there'll ever be any convictions. And something's wrong with that yeah. when people are allowed to abuse people with impunity and, and get away with it. It's exactly and right. it's only for your perseverance um, that your your adoptive father didn't get away with it, that he is now in, in prison. Let's just also call it like it is. The main reason why he's in prison is because he admitted it. He admitted it to, the, to his wife, to his social worker, to all of the other siblings and his wife, and they, some of them have made statements, and to a family cousin. And if he hadn't done that, where would we be now? We'd be floundering. And if, whenever he had admitted it, and the police still, still said no, what crossed my mind was, well, what does it take for a paedophile to be convicted? He's admitted it. What else do you want? Yeah, that is, that's the... Thing. That needs to change. It, we need to move from adversarial to an inquisitorial trial. That will remove all of that. And then it'll look at, well, she was acting out. Why was she acting out? Well, she was cutting her wrist. Why was she cutting her wrist? She was taking overdoses. Why? What else was going on in the environment? Who did she confide in? She talked to her, her school friends at, at the time. They came forward. They all made statements. God bless them to a man. Every single one of them came forward and stood stood by me. They all said, yes, this is what happened. In, a, in an inquisitorial trial, it would have been a done deal and he would have gotten the sentence that he deserves frankly which would be life but he got two and he got five years based on the lesser counts so we need to change the system overall okay Suzanne I really appreciate you coming in first of all and also just really appreciate what you're doing waving your anonymity I don't think people realize what a big thing that is for you I mean as much as you have that motivation to change things it's also I know very personally difficult to have to relive and have to put your story out there. But like you say, that's the power of it and that will hopefully change things. So thank you very much. Thank for you for doing. putting forward this platform to be able to put this message out there. And just want to say one word, one word of hope to victims who are suffering. Get therapy because you can change the narrative from being a victim to a survivor. There is hope. I promise there is. Well, that's a really lovely note to end it on. Suzanne, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you, Roisin. That was the very brave and 
I think, courageous and powerful Suzanne Connolly there. We're grateful to her. And as I said, I think we can all learn from her. It's the start of a different kind of conversation around child sexual abuse. One that hopefully will lead to changes um, and those changes won't happen overnight, but we certainly need to talk about it. I wish Suzanne all the best. The Dublin Fringe Festival is beginning soon and one of the plays in this year's festival explores rape culture. Kiss Kiss Slap Slap is the debut play from Chaos Factory. It's created by Dublin-based women Fanula Gygax, Danielle Galligan and Venetia Bowe and producer Rachel Bergen. It's a play, they say, about moving, moving forward from past oppressions and microaggressions. And it's also about looking back, but never returning, always arriving and trying to define the new. It's a surreal spectacle of beauty, bravery and brutality. Rachel Bergen and Venetia Bowe of Chaos Factory came in to talk about the play and the inspiration behind Kiss Kiss Slap Slap. So Kiss Kiss Slap Slap, Rachel, tell me about it and why you wanted to explore rape culture in a play for the Fringe, in your first play. Yeah, so um, it's basically, yeah, as you said, about rape culture um, and it kind of looks at um, all the things that um, make up rape culture, all the different little levels of what's known as the rape pyramid. Um, And um, yeah, we wanted to explore it. We started talking initially about making a play about women. Um, And we wanted to look at what was happening now and what was happening in the future and what we could do that might inspire people to make some small changes that might help the future and this huge problem that is rape culture. Some people say there is no such thing as rape culture and what do you say to them? There definitely is. <laughs> there absolutely is. Um, when you look at all of it, it's just that you don't necessarily notice the smaller things until you're actually examining all of it. So that's kind of what the play is kind of trying to do. So we kind of take different moments from different um, places in the triangle. So the triangle looks at um, the top tier is explicit violence. Um, then there's victimization, degradation and removal of autonomy. Removal of autonomy. That's um, Venetia's voice there as well. <laughs> Venetia, you're one of the actors in it. I am, yes, and uh, creators. But it's very much a collaborative. It's a collaborative uh, process. Your, your company yeah. is um, Chaos Factory. Yes. And this is your debut play. Yeah. For you, Venetia, why was this an interesting subject to explore? Well, we always look at what's exciting for all three, all four of us, is that is the women's body and societal attitudes and towards that and I mean yeah it all comes from the female's body that we are women anyway um but I just think especially after we were interested in it before the Me Too movement we've been working on this show for over two years now and then Me Too happened and what happens after that I think Mm -hmm is that this incredible moment of solidarity, people speaking out, and it's wonderful, it's brilliant, but it's not the end of the conversation. It's the start of it. Mm. And I think that that this show is very much saying that, that we begin the conversation, but then it needs to continue and we need to do something more and new and, you know, keep it alive and make it an an inclusive conversation, Mm. that it's not a blaming. You know, it's saying that we're all part of the problem and we're all part of the solution. Okay. And Rachel, it's a very it's a very physical piece, is that right? Yeah, very physical. So um there wouldn't be a huge amount of text in the show really. Um so it's the three girls uh on stage and um they kind of are they're playing lots of different characters throughout and um they um do a lot of movement sequences and um kind of dance movements as well that kind of portray all the different feelings, all the different emotions and uh, some of the physical things that happen as a result of rape culture. You talked about solutions and like the future and stuff. So does does your piece come up with some, um, is there a kind of a hopeful element to it that, you know, practical things that people maybe in the audience might go home thinking about ways that they might be able to change or contribute? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it looks at, first of all, our, our kind of first act kind of looks at um, different examples of some of the things. And then our final act kind of looks at how do we help each other? How do we figure this out together? And what are the next steps of moving forward with it? Um, How do we stop um, blaming each other and pretending like it's not happening? Um, So, yeah, it's definitely hopeful. 
Yeah. Venetia, you're going to read a bit for us. Um, can you just set the scene of this part? Uh, like you say, it's it's not there's not it's not very text heavy the piece, but this no, is No, not this usually. Is a, a part of the text. Well the context of what I'm going to say is the physical reactions to walking home. And we were exploring these emotions that kind of swarm together of fear, shame and anger and how they live in your body. Um, Thinking of like catcalling, for example, that something is said to you in a nonchalant way, but it actually stays in your body and lives longer than your journey home. Okay, and that's that's the context of this piece you're going to read for us now from Kiss Kiss Slap Slap. Your heart rate increases. You look down at the ground. You clench your jaw. Your shoulders tense. Your cheeks feel hot. You grind your teeth. Your breath is shallow. You blush. Headache. Your sense of awareness is sharpened. You laugh awkwardly. Stomach ache. Your stomach tightens. You itch. Increased heart rate. You begin to sweat. You cough. Sweating. Your muscles contract. You clasp your body. Feeling hot in the face, you walk faster. You fold your arms. Deep breaths. Your jaw tightens. You squeeze your arms. You curse. Your fists clench. You tug your clothes. Dizziness. You flinch at the smallest thing. You look at your phone. You bite your cheeks. You tremble. You bite your fingernails. You put your middle finger up, a tightness in the chest. You bite your cuticles. You shout, rapid heartbeat. You relive it. You swear, choking sensation. You replay it. You dance, butterflies in the stomach. You hesitate. You stamp your feet, dry mouth. You feel stupid. You thrash. You hear your pulse in your ears. You go blank. You bark. You need to go to the toilet. You lie. You growl. Confusion. You keep walking. I think listening to that, a lot of women will relate to it and will kind of recognise a lot of those physical sensations um, and that fear and that sort of just feeling that you just don't know what every noise is kind of could be some kind of danger. But um, men mightn't recognise it as much. Mm. Have you talked to the guys in your life much about this piece? Yeah, we have some great um, male collaborators on the team as well. Um, Our movement director, Brian Burrows, um, has worked heavily with us on this section particularly as well. Um, And um, yeah, we've had a lot of conversations with how uh, some men who are conscious that women might feel this way, mm-hmm. how they react to it. So, you know, do they speed up and cut past her? Do they yes. slow down and try and t- stay behind her? Do they cross to the other side of the road? Um, and a lot of men are conscious of it. Um, but, uh, yeah, we have, a, we have a lot of male collaborators who've kind of given us their perspectives, which is And do great. you have any male friends who've kind of, who've, who are less, um, let's say, use the word woke or understanding <laughs> of, of this phenomenon that you've had to kind of educate? Or do you think that the guys your age are kind of um, I think the well walking in home section in particular is the one that is most surprising to men. Interesting, actually. Yeah. Mm. Um, and with the others that they're more aware of it. But I think for this, for the, the females' like experience yeah. of the walking home is the one, because sexual violence and harassment is non-gender. I mean, it happens to everyone. You mm. know, that is completely given. Mm. But I think with this particular, it's it's a female experience, it seems to be, more so. Like trying to tell men, you know, that when you're walking home, sometimes you'll hold your keys in your hand, just in case. Or you take your hair down so no one can grab your ponytail. That's stuff that people, you know, a lot of men are actually quite shocked by because yeah. they just don't, they don't have to think about it naturally. You know, whereas if you are walking home down the keys late at night, you know, that is what you're going to have to do to get home safely. Yeah. It's funny because, I mean, I'd be a good bit older than you. And when I was your age or, you know, younger, these things weren't things we talked about. I mean, we just, mm-hmm. it wasn't part of the conversation. And now it, it, it sometimes feel it's like it's all we talk about in a way. Do you feel that there is a kind of, it's, it's almost gone... I can't say too far, but that there's like a, a constant that we have to constantly be talking about. Like I think about my two daughters, you know, they're nine. I don't, I'd love them not to have to 
think about these things. And maybe yeah. the stuff you're doing will mean they won't have to. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of, um, there's a good side to it, that awareness and the fact that we're very aware of, of all these things. And another side, it feels like a lot for pe- people to take on and to have to constantly carry. Does yeah, that make sense? Definitely. And I think that's kind of what we kind of felt um, kind of sparked this as well, was just how much we were carrying with us um, on a day-to-day basis, how much was carried in the body. Um, and how do we start a conversation that's specifically about that, that kind of highlights those things and goes, you know, that if we just ease these little pressures, then the next step will get better and then the next step will get better. Um, and just making people aware of it, I think. Um, but I do think there is this oversaturation in, in the conversation and I mm. think our approach in the show is actually looking at it in a kind of satirical way that is it's magnifying these things that are in the, the, the conversation at the moment but it's kind of exploding them so that people see the ridiculousness of it and just shifting the perspective a little bit to see if there's a different conversation that needs to be had or some, or just that it's an action-based thing or to just shake it up a bit. Mm-hmm. So it's not just people coming out, this is my story, yeah. I'm a victim, I'm a victim, I'm yeah. a victim. Because yes... You do switch off and you do stop listening to that, Mm -hmm. however awful. You become desensitised, I suppose. I think the great thing about the Me Too movement was all these um, private stories becoming public. And I think now it's about uh, continuing that conversation and also showing the culture and showing the obscurity of it all and really just highlighting how absolutely absurd half of it is, you know? Like the fact, like we play with sections on catcalling and stuff like that and we really push them to an extreme so that, they're quite ridiculous, you know, and it's looking at the ridiculous in the everyday life that we just accept. Um, The title Kiss Kiss Slap Slap, where did that come from? (laughs) You're both (laughs) grinning at each other there. (laughs) Venetia, is it your fault? (laughs) Totally. (laughs) There's just a lot of kissing and slapping that happens. (laughs) Well, I don't, I can't think of a better ad for a play than than that So tell me where and when and all those details that people can go because there's so many shows happening in the Fringe. It must be so hard to compete and to try and go, (laughs) look, ours is brilliant, come and see it. But this is your opportunity. Yeah, so it's on the 11th to the 15th in Smock Eddie Black Box at 7pm. And we have a 3pm matinee on the 15th as well. Okay, so four nights people have a chance to see it. Yes, six performances. Six performances as well. And sorry, where did you say it is? Smock Alley Black Box. Okay, this is actually a really nice space. I like that space space. there. Yeah, it's really nice and it's great for what we want to do. It's fantastic for a bit of movement. So, yeah. Okay, brilliant. Well, listen, the best of luck with it. Um, Thank you so much. Kiss Kiss Slap Slap is the name. I think it sounds really interesting and very of the moment. Very zeitgeisty, I think. People still say that. Yeah. 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 (laughs) You've got your finger on the pulse. Um, But no, it sounds very interesting. And I like the fact that there's a hopeful side to it and also you are subverting the conversation because it is, like you said, an oversaturation sometimes and almost you're hearing the same thing so much Mm. that they become a bit meaningless so I think anything that provokes or challenges or gets us thinking in a different way is really good thank you both very much for coming in thank you so much that was Rachel Bergen and Venetia Bowen the best of luck to them on their debut play which is on in Smock Alley Theatre Black Box that's all we have time for on the Women's Podcast you can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts and of course we are always available on irishtimes.com tweet us or find us on Facebook at IT Women's Podcast I'm Roisin Ingle thanks for listening Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.